This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's show, we present a talk with the Chilean writer and activist Pablo Abufom that took place on February 23rd at UCLA, sponsored by the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History, in collaboration with the Political Sociology of the Global South Working Group. Pablo Abufom was a participant in the social protest movement of October 2019 and has been on this program many times to discuss and analyze those events in Chile and everything that followed. In this talk, Pablo attempts to explain larger political and social phenomena on a global scale from the Latin American experience, considering the wave of revolts between 2018 and 20. And then he looks at the rise of neo-fascism everywhere, with Argentina as the most recent case. Pablo asks, what can we learn from these revolts that took place in Latin America in the last five years? And he admits it's a tragic question because we ask it after being defeated or at least after the revolts were paralyzed by the power of the ruling elites of our countries, he says, amid the acute pandemic crisis of COVID-19. My extended comments on Pablo's talk follow his analysis of what moved people into the streets to struggle for a dignified life with all of its social meaning and how that worldwide movement against neoliberal austerity failed to go further. And I ask for Pablo's view on what it would take for the kind of organization to emerge that could take root and succeed. Okay, it's a great pleasure today to be able to introduce Pablo Abufon, philosopher, translator, writer, activist, all those things, and member of the Movimiento Solidaridad in Chile and director of Alternativo Institute for Anti-Capitalist Studies. Pablo is going to be speaking today on the subject with the title, Broken Timelines, Strategic Lessons from Latin American Revolts to Neo-Fascism and Back. Pablo will speak, and then we will have two presenters, Cesar and Susie Weissman, who I'm not allowed to forget. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Yeah, thanks, uh, Bob and Susie and also Rohan for uh, organizing this event. It's uh, really wonderful to be here at UCLA. I've been doing this this talk and, and talking to people here in the U.S. for the past month, a couple of times before in other cities. And one of the things that I felt that it's off, it's to talk about strategy and revolution in a context that is so far from revolution. But it also feels that it's uh, the most important time to talk about it. We're coming out of several defeats of revolts or mass protests and mobilizations that eventually could have led to revolutions or radical transformations, but they didn't. And so I think it's precisely the moment to talk about this. And so this is why this talk is guided by, by a question, which is what we can learn from the series of revolts that took place in Latin America in the past five years. And of course, it's a tragic question because we're asking it after those defeats or at least after our revolts were paralyzed by the power of the ruling elites and, and the status quo in our countries. 
And I want to begin with two quotes. One of October 8th, 2019, it says, Chile is a true oasis amid a troubled Latin America. And then 12 days later, October 20th, 2019, we are at war against a powerful, relentless enemy who has no respect for anyone or anything, who is willing to use violence and crime without any limits, even when it involves the loss of human lives, who is willing to burn our hospitals, our subway stations, our supermarkets with the, with the only purpose of producing the greatest possible harm to all Chileans. They are at war with the, all of us Chileans of goodwill who want to live under a democracy with liberty and peace. Both of these statements, the one about the oasis and the one about the, the being at war against a powerful enemy, are by the same person, Sebastián Piñera, one of the richest men in Chile, two times president and longtime defender of the economic social policies of the Chilean dictatorship. Now we may also add dead. He died in a helicopter crash some weeks ago. So, of course, the question arises, what happened between the 8th and the 20th of October? And people have called it many things, social explosion, estallido social, Rebellion, some even say revolution, but I think that the most precise name is popular revolt. A revolt that mobilized the masses of the Chilean people. After the government announced a hike in the public transport fare in Santiago, young high school students began flooding the subway station and jumping over the turnstiles as a sign of protest. But high school students and college students have a reduced fare in Chile, so why were they protesting? What moved young students who organized massive calls to evade and not pay the subway. It was a powerful mix of solidarity with their communities that were being affected by this change, and of course a rage, a rage against the repressive legislation that criminalized high school students who were protesting in, the, in, in their high schools. After a few days of students protesting in the subway, more people started to join, older people, And eventually, you could hear people chanting, El Pueblo Unido jamás será vencido. The people united will never be defeated. And I remember thinking that that was different. It was something else. Something was changing with this dynamics of the student protest. It was not just another student protest about a particular issue. It was something deeper. By October 18th, in Santiago and soon after, all of Chile had changed. The government shut the subway down and literally thousands had to walk home. And that turned out to be a wonderful way of creating the conditions for a mass protest. And then it happened. A young woman was shot in her leg by the riot police. Tear gas grenades were shot towards protesters in the streets. Water cannons tried to disperse spontaneous demonstrations downtown. The memory of a people is not simply the sum of the memories that individuals carry as their personal biographies. Memory is a collective activity. And the people of Chile remember all those times we were shot at. In 1907, in the mines up north, when over 10,000 workers and their families were massacred by the army. In 1969, in the south, when people who had lost their homes during an earthquake occupied a plot of land to build their houses, and they were evicted and some of them killed. And of course, from 1973 to 1990, tens of thousands were either tortured, killed, or disappeared during the Pinochet dictatorship. And of course, there's not enough time to list the times that agents of the state have killed members of indigenous communities, the Mapuche, the Ona, Rapanui, and others. So on October 18th, the Chilean people reacted because they remembered what happens when the cops start shooting. 
But it's not just the memory of state violence, or at least explicit violence. It's also the memory of living without dignity. The use of the word dignity in Latin America has a particular social meaning. To live in a dignified home without dirt floors, to be paid a dignified wage to feed your family, to live a dignified life as the eight-hour day movement proclaimed in the 19th century. That day, October 18th, 2019, Chile remembered in a sudden spark of collective anger the past 30 years of neoliberal transformations that had made their lives the target of an unregulated market and an undemocratic political system. Since the return of the so-called democratic governments after the dictatorship, Chile has been a paradise for the rich and hell for the poor, a segregated society in which there seems to be two sets of institutions in all domains of life, wonderful private schools for the rich, defunded dying schools for the poor, and the same with housing, healthcare, the pension system, culture, etc. How do working class people survive in Chile? Using credit cards provided not only by banks, but also by department stores and supermarkets. And I'm sure that sounds familiar. Food and clothes paid in 12 installments, if you can afford paying every month. For 30 years, since the end of the dictatorship, Chile has been hailed as an economic miracle, reducing poverty, increasing per capita income, building shiny freeways, and allowing millions to access higher education. And all of that is, is true. But what is also true is a darker truth. Household debt, high inequality, poor health due to long hours in one, two, sometimes three jobs, not to mention urban segregation and environmental destruction. Crucially, both the dictatorship and the democratic administrations have weakened the once powerful labor movement, leaving no space for political representation besides the parties of the rich and the powerful. So the toxic combination of neoliberal policies was waiting to explode. Returning to those two quotes, what happened between the 8th and the 20th of October 2019? Strangely, 30 years happened. We remembered 30 years in a split second because we couldn't take it anymore. This, I think, is what it takes to spark a revolt, an unsolved crisis, an unresponsive government, and the collective memory of a people. Apparently, memory needs no time to do its work. It's as if the past was suddenly present in every action, moving a whole community towards a confrontation, because this is not a memory with no conflict. In fact, it is the memory of conflict, of class conflict. For the past five years, we've been living in a period of turmoil in Latin America. Right before Chile, something similar happened in Ecuador, after the government announced a cut in fuel subsidies. Cities, cities exploded. The organized indigenous movement, together with young people protesting in the streets, were able to stop the government. And all of this happened in the context of a long economic crisis that turned a pink tide country into another neoliberal repressive government. Soon after, 2021, Colombia had its own revolt after the right-wing government announced a tax reform. And the national strike paralyzed the country again. Young urban workers and students that protested that particular reform, but also decades of state and paramilitary violence and neoliberal policies. Peru has also been mobilizing for years against corruption and for an improvement of living conditions in 2022, so a massive movement that ended up with a coup and over a year of violent and repressive government. But it's not just Latin America. Mass protests against police and racist violence in the U.S., 
violent confrontations with an illegitimate government in Haiti, mass mobilizations in Lebanon, a near revolution in Sudan, and more recently, a global movement against Israel's genocidal aggression against the Palestinian people. So there's clearly something going on. And I want to try to find some common threads in this mess. First of all, we see a time of protests becoming riots and riots becoming national revolts. Violence is not a taboo anymore, or at least it's not something that is exclusively in the hands of state agents. Political violence becomes a tool to open the way for repressed dreams and contained anger. Just like in May 1968 that began in Paris and spread across the world, the barricades blocked the streets in order to open the way towards new possibilities. Second, the main actors of these current revolts are very different from the one who took part in similar movements in years past. People's participation is not mainly based on union membership or political allegiance. Now it's the urban poor, both the totally marginalized as well as the middle class in the process of being impoverished. Unions, parties, and to some extent social movements are there sometimes, but not as the main force but as a segment of society that is dragged by the storm. It's a crucial segment, unions, parties, and social movements. They provide the explicit memory of past struggles and contribute to identifying the pressing issues by pointing in the direction of their demands. Healthcare, education, housing, and also in the case of Chile, a new constitution. But the bulk of the revolt is made up of people who care about improving their lives immediately and protesting those who are perceived as the cause of the problem, which most of the time points to the government and politicians in general. Third, we really don't know what will ignite the fire. We know that it always happens on fragile ground and inflammable ground, but the spark can be, as in Chile, the price of the subway fare, or in, in, as in Colombia, tax reform or other government announcements. We know that neoliberal reforms have paved the way for a precarious life and a radical disconnect between the public policies and how people actually live. But some of these revolts also happened in countries where these protests were not against the established effects of neoliberalism, but about against the implementation of neoliberal policies themselves. And fourth, the occupation of streets, squares, and other public places is a common theme. This tactic, of course, has been very present since 2011 wave of protests in Spain, Chile, the US, Tunisia, Egypt, and others. And compared to other rebellious moments in history... The occupation of public space is not simply the stage of the battles, but one of the goals of the movement. Being there, staying there, is a sign of resistance in itself. And this is relevant because we have to remember that we're talking about mass protests of mostly non-union and non-party population. That is largely leaderless movements. And labor struggles take place or are closely linked to the workplace and there the adversary is the boss or the corporation. On its hand, political struggle takes place in the institutions and the use of public space is a way to reinforce the power or legitimacy of one party over another. But during Latin American revolts, protesters had no other place than the streets and no other adversary than the state itself as the counterpart of an entire society. In the spirit of providing a broader understanding of what the Latin American revolts mean, I think that we can interpret all these common threads as being part of the same historical process, namely the current moment in a long crisis in how capitalism has organized the way we reproduce ourselves as a society. 
In other words, it's a crisis in social reproduction. And here I understand social reproduction in the sense that Marx used this phrase as the reproduction of the entirety of social relations or a social metabolism based on human labor and our relationship with the external world. Of course, I'm aware that there's an entire field of study, social reproduction theory, and there's a debate in that context. But in this context, I understand social reproduction as including both production of commodities and production of labor force that is commonly referred to as reproduction. So going back, this crisis, many have said, is multiple. It involves economic, environmental, geopolitical, gender, and cultural relations. From the point of view of macroeconomics and global finances, the 2008 crisis, of course, is its closest origin. But from the standpoint of social reproduction in general, this is a crisis that's been ongoing since at least the 70s. And I want to mention some, uh, what I think are long-term tendencies in the period. Economically, the rate of profit, which is the driver of productive investment and economic growth under capitalism, has not recovered its levels for decades. And this is one of the reasons that explain what we all call neoliberalism, that is a frontal attack on the living and working conditions of the global working class in order to defend and increase profits. Environmentally, we are all aware of the impact of 20th century industrial capitalism, and there's no reason to expect that this will change in the foreseeable future. Geopolitically, the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of global capitalism, as apparently the only alternative, has given way to an unstable global order in which no inch of the world escapes the rabid competition for commodifying and owning every aspect of our lives, which in turn has led to a state of permanent and total war, even if there's times of relative peace in this or in that continent. In terms of gender and sexual relations, the traditional heterosexual and patriarchal roles for the reproduction of family or so and social order have been gravely hurt by profound transformations in the way we understand our bodies, our identities, and the very idea of family. And this has been produced both by transformations in the labor market and changes, changes in how capitalism organizes day-to-day -day reproduction of human beings in particular. Finally, in cultural terms, I just want to mention the fragmentation and isolation of the working class due to changes in, in the international division of work, of labor, as the cause of an explosion in the way we understand ourselves as a society, which has introduced at the same time the experience of a global society and a strengthening of individualism and chauvinism. This is all wonderful, so let's make it worse. Yes. One of the crucial effects of the current moment of this global crisis is, is that it has produced a world in which there's no stability. Apparently, there's no stable tendency, but instability itself. And there was a time during the 90s that in my country, every, everyone thought that we were living in a calm and cool moment. And this may be the case in other countries for some years. But the turbulent years of the world since 2008 are evident everywhere. We've mentioned the way some countries and some societies have responded to this crisis. We see social movements, political parties, and mass protests, which are in line with traditional interpretations of progressive radical leftist movements. And of course, that makes sense. They've all been demanding justice, dignity, equality, and freedom from oppression and exploitation. But this world in crisis has engendered something else, which grew silently for some time and is now proudly living the time of its life. I'm talking about the emergence of a new right-wing movement, whether we call it alt-right, neo-fascism, post-fascism, or something else. 
I think it is reasonable to say that the new right is in itself a response to the crisis in the same way that the feminist, environmentalist, anti-colonial, and socialist movements are a response to the crisis. While leftist movements are looking to overcome the crisis in a progressive and sometimes revolutionary direction, the new right is a conservative, authoritarian, and nationalistic response to it, looking to reestablish some mythical past of order through the power of bullets, Bibles, and borders. And I want to point out that this, this idea that the right wing, this new right, is a response to the crisis is a way to say that we shouldn't and we cannot blame in any way the anti-colonial, feminist, or indigenous movements for the emergence of a new fascism. It's not that they are, they, of course, they respond to that because they hate women and hate uh, migrants and hate uh, minorities, but It's not that that made them emerge in this new moment. While classic fascism imagined a return to a golden age of European empires and capitalist expansion, these neo-fascist movements seem to imagine a return to the golden age of neoliberal expansion of the 90s, where no migrants were stealing your job, where no Muslims were living in your neighborhood, where no feminists were questioning your jokes, and no communists were demanding public services. Of course, you've seen this face to face. Donald Trump is one of the best examples of this new right. But also Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban in Hungary, Milley in Argentina, and probably the worst of all, Netanyahu in Palestine. And there are more coming, Le Pen in France, Cast in Chile, among others. They are winning relevant battles in the cultural war. They are promoting a vengeful and criminalizing view of the revolts and other mass protests and erasing whatever changes could be won by them. And I want to try to connect everything I've said so far, and I hope I won't let you down. How can we explain that only a few years after we experienced a period of mass revolts with mostly democratic and socialist demands, now we see that the world is on the verge of experiencing a wave of neo-fascist governments? Adding to this the genocide of Palestinians by Israel, supported by the U.S. and Europe, which is very explicitly guided by an ethno-nationalistic, neoliberal, and authoritarian government, which makes sense when you see the connections between the neo-right movements and Zionism in general. Let's try to go back to the revolt in Chile. After millions took to the streets and popular assemblies were formed all around the country that gathered people to defend themselves from attacks by the police or to talk about the new constitution, the society we wanted to live in, After we had a democratic process to draft a new constitution, which turned out to be the most progressive constitution in the world, and it was rejected, after that, the neo-fascist candidate, Cast, almost wins the presidential election. He actually won the first round against Boric. The constitution was rejected in 2022 by an overwhelming majority of 62% of the population rejected that, pro that the most progressive constitution. And now the main national concern as in other places, seems to be crime and migration, and not, definitely not, social justice or democracy or the struggle against neoliberalism. So the question that many of us in Latin America are asking right now is, how can we explain this weird outcome? And I will give you just a short version of my answer. I think it's because those revolts didn't end up becoming revolutions. And that happens because in politics, as well as in war and love and other domains of life, 
There's no guarantee of any outcome, and it's all dependent on the concrete historical possibilities that are at the disposal of the actors involved in conflict. And the problem that we face is that those concrete historical possibilities are strongly determined by the crisis that I described. And during the accelerated time of a revolt in Chile and Colombia and other places, there's a short window of opportunity when those possibilities that are already established by this, the historical conditions can be broadened, but there's a limit to that. Revolts are not all powerful and there are things that they cannot overcome. And I want to concentrate on those things that the recent revolts in Latin America weren't able to overcome or that they were lacking and try to extract a few strategic lessons from them. I already mentioned that revolts in Latin America were populated by the new faces of the global working class, young people, precarious workers, women, indigenous, urban poor, and mostly with no political affiliation. During the 20th century, the collective action of the working class was typically organized around labor unions and political parties. This scenario was changed by the economic and social transformations of the past decades. And in many countries, military dictatorships and the physical destruction of unions and parties transformed the way that the working class organized itself. But in others, it was a slower but equally striking reordering of political institutions, social relations, and the organization of labor. Also, the privatization of public services and the capitalist plunder of the commons has reorganized our lives. So in those societies where neo neoliberalism has gone all the way, like in Chile, the collective subjectivities we knew in the 20th century are missing. And I want to say this also in simple terms. There's no party of the working class, but not because the working class has disappeared. No, what happens is that the working class has changed. It doesn't look the same way. It doesn't act the way it used to. We are still the ones who create all the wealth and the ones who are being exploited so that the bosses can have their surplus value. But of course, and we know this because social scientists and philosophers have taught us everything is more complicated than just saying that. I think that it, it's historically accurate to say that wherever there was a successful revolution, there was a party or some form of political organization that which shared strategies and tactics. The Russian Revolution, of course, is the best example, but the same can be said of China, Cuba, Nicaragua, and to up some, some point, Chile during the popular unity government, whatever we can think now of those revolutions. And revolutions have the stubborn tendency of being events that demand a very clear vision and some sort of strong leadership. Revolutions go against everything that is established, so they don't happen spontaneously. They are what Walter Benjamin called an emergency break, a way to violently stop the destructive train of capitalist progress. And the metaphor has a particular meaning. Someone has to pull that break. And in the classic socialist tradition, that collective someone is the party or the political organization. Uh, but there's no revolutionary party like those we knew in the 20th century because the political, social, and cultural landscape is not the same. Some people believe that this means that we should discard the very idea of a party. But I believe that political organizations are so fundamental in capitalist society in particular, that even if we call them something else, we will be building new kinds of parties anyway. Organizations that are meant to articulate a vision, coordinate, 
revolutionary or transformative activity and carry the memory of past struggles beyond any defeat. I think this is the first strategic lesson from Latin American revolts, that mass movements will benefit immensely from that sort of political mediation and organization that we have called parties that could have another name, but, but that amid intense moments like revolts, works operates as a strategic operator, in the words of Daniel Ben Said. Political organizations are a collective actor that can overcome tactical defeats, like the rejection of the constitutional uh, draft, in order to continue the struggle for strategic goals and quickly respond to the changes in the speed and the direction of history. And now the second lesson. What are those strategic goals that could take the revolt beyond its own limits? Why is it that progressive governments that follow some of these revolts, like Gabriel Boric in Chile, have not been able to stop the neo-fascist storm? Because we see progressive or leftist governments in Chile, Colombia, before at some point in Argentina. And again, forgive my simplicity, I think it's because the current crisis of capitalism cannot be overcome by few reforms that don't confront the fundamental problems. The situation is so radical that it has to be faced with radical transformations. And in the classic language of leftist politics, this set of transformations is what we call a program, which, of course, is not the same as a platform for a particular candidate or a plan for a government, but an alternative vision of society. And something weird happens with time and reality in revolutionary programs. It's that which we aspire to, that horizon we want to reach, the future that it's still not here appears more real than the existing world of today. That's why reality explodes and time jumps over itself. It's as if reality opens itself to let another world enter. And in that process, the sad and tragic life under capitalism is infused with new possibilities. That's why the demands of the revolts and the experience, the personal first-hand experience, collective or individual, of revolts has this moment of total enthusiasm and exhilaration that reality is going beyond itself. The extent of the crisis we're experiencing has radical implications. If the normal development of capitalism has brought us here, then we need an anti-capitalist program, not simply more taxes and more redistribution of wealth while keeping the same structure of production, the labor market, etc. The sacred institution of private property must be challenged and common ownership through expropriation must be understood as a democratic necessity. Controlling the banks and financial institution is key in order to use wealth for the common good and stop the infinite drive for profits via interests and debt. By now, it's very clear that private corporations cannot lead the ecological transitions that we need in order to survive as a species. Well then, governments and societies and countries and people will have to force them to do it, or else become public enemies of mankind. On the other hand, we must reduce our working hours while keeping our wages, so that everyone has a job. If robots and computers and artificial intelligence end up reducing the time needed to produce something, then that process should not lead to downsizing the workforce, but to distributing the remaining hours among workers. And I can hear your objections and my own. This is utopian or simply impossible because all this goes against the power of the capitalist class. And that's true. 
But it's also true that we are facing a terrible dilemma. If we don't confront the power of the capitalist class and pull the emergency brake, we're heading straight to an authoritarian nightmare, not only for the poor and marginalized of the world, but also for everyone living in Western democratic societies. But living there opposed the Zionist genocide against Palestinians, opposed the expansion of capitalist extraction of common goods, and support even the most basic human rights for people. And the way, for instance, universities in some countries have responded to pro-Palestinian protests is, I think, is, a, is an expression of this, that it's not just the poor and the marginalized of the world, but it's also professors and students and middle-class people in Western democratic rich societies. So how do we confront the power of the capitalist class? Of course, this is the main question and the main strategic lesson from Latin American revolts in the face of its own defeats. I don't have the entire answer, but I do know that we need to fight power with popular power, that we need to turn our isolated dreams, aspirations, and organizations into a struggle for power in the broadest sense of the word, including, but not limited, to institutional power. If the main threat for the popular classes today is the rise of the extreme right, then our duty is to identify all the ways by which it is possible to stop and combat this regressive process. And I believe that this can happen mainly through, one, a resurgence of the demands that can get the working class out of the growing precariousness it is experiencing, so material transformations, and two, a political force that connects these solutions with a narrative of deep transformation that goes to the root, that breaks with the prevailing political and economic regime. If the neo-fascist project represents a way out of the crisis with conservative, authoritarian, and nationalistic characteristics that reinforce the regime, then the path for the left and the social movements in Latin America and elsewhere will have to be a path of social struggles and class conflict in an anti-capitalist, feminist, and eco-socialist perspective, aimed at exposing the causes of the crisis while at the same time solving its most immediate symptoms with short-term material solutions. Without this combination of mass struggle and material solutions in the struggle for power, the extreme right will continue to have a free hand to convince the popular sectors that the only solution to the crisis is to rely on their agenda of cutthroat competition between the poor and the poorest. The most important question now is how to turn these lessons into effective political action. But this is beyond my scope, and it depends on the concrete reality of each country or region of the world. And I'm happy to hear what you, your thoughts about this. I just wanted to offer an interpretation of the current moment and open the present to the possibilities of a transformed future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our uh, first discussant is Cesar Castillo. He's a PhD student here in the sociology department. Uh, his field is political sociology, and his areas of uh, research, if I understand this properly, are poor people's politics in Latin America, specifically urban uprisings. Thank you very much, Cesar. Okay, well, thank you, first of all, to Pablo for visiting us and for your sharing your perspective. Yeah, this is this is a very close topic, both to to my research and to my personal politics. My specific areas for my dissertation is the Colombian uprising, so I'm going to be referring to that a little bit more. 
But first, I guess I wanted to broaden a little bit the, the historical context to understand this latest wave of uprisings, because it's not the first wave, but actually the second wave of major anti-neoliberal uprisings in Latin America. The first wave started in Venezuela in 1989 with major riots and then followed in Ecuador in the 90s and the 2000s, the famous Argentine uprising after the 2001 collapse of the economy and the Bolivian water and gas wars um, of the early 2000s. And I think we have just as much to learn from that first wave as from the recent wave. Those four major revolts, of course, led to, um, not directly, but eventually led to left and center-left governments in those countries and also in other countries in the region, the so-called Pink Tide, which enjoyed a sort of electoral hegemony from about 2003 to 2014. And then we see that model kind of being exhausted and beginning to decline around 2014. And I think that is key context to understand this wave that happens um, between 2019 and 2021. And I think it's important for something that Pablo was saying earlier, which is that this is, these are moments where collective memory of class conflict kind of becomes reactivated. And so understanding those processes, I think is really, really important. There's uh, some good sociology of the um, gas wars in the, the struggles to nationalize gas industry in Bolivia in 2003 and 2005 that show how basically informal and precarious workers in the city of El Alto next to La Paz um, were very much reconfiguring memories of revolutionary struggle from their times as miners and as peasants. They were very recent arrivals to the city. So we also see something similar with the resurfacing of the Pobladores movement in Chile, which was a movement of residents of marginalized neighborhoods demanding housing and access to urban services. It went through a big decline during the time of the dictatorship, or actually right after the dictatorship. And now it's been sort of resurfacing with a lot of this organizational and kind of like collective memories of struggle. So, and just as much as this, there's a historical memory of the revolts, I think the revolts themselves become a battleground about how they're going to be remembered. So we see that definitely in Chile. We see it in Colombia, how there's a huge struggle between progressive forces and right-wing forces about who is going to tell the story of the uprising and what it means. Um, it's been framed as just like a terrorist takeover in Colombia, and I'm sure it's been framed similarly in Chile as well. So, okay, that's in terms of that historical context talk a little bit about the crises that are spurring these revolts. Yeah, I very much agree that it, that it is a, a crisis of social reproduction in the sense that in, in global South countries, the margin for economic decline is very small. So when you have periods of economic decline, I think the ground becomes very fertile for revolts because people are literally fighting for survival. So if there's a political opportunity for revolt, it can very quickly sort of spread like fire. But it's also a crisis of legitimacy for the political establishment. I think that's a global phenomenon. Pablo mentioned that there's a, it has to do with profitability. And I think that's important also to take into account when thinking about the Pink Tide experience, since the Pink Tide experience was exhausted when 
the profits that were being made or the accumulation model from the export of primary raw materials that were very had very high prices during that period began to run out. So as sort of the profitability of that model began to decline and state revenue began to decline, then the legitimacy, political legitimacy of these governments also began to erode. And some of them turned, um, like Venezuela and Nicaragua, towards very authoritarian models, um, which creates all kinds of problems for the left. Um, also wanted to mention that unlike the first wave, the second wave is also in the context of kind of geopolitical interstate conflict. Um, and I think that's important too, because in the past, kind of like the role of the United States as the hegemon, specifically in Latin America, was very different than it is today. I mean, they're still very much present and powerful, but you know, to see the United States try to overthrow the Venezuelan regime multiple times and basically give up on it is very different from the earlier histories of U.S.-sponsored kind of um, takeover. So we see we see a decline, I think, in the the level of U.S. world hegemony in Latin America. Paulo also mentioned that the crisis involves urban segregation, and that's a point that I wanted to highlight because I think. To understand these revolts, we need to understand what sort of new political subjectivities are being expressed in them. And, you know, my my line of research, I would argue that the urban segregation has reached new levels in Latin America. There's a good body of literature on this, The City of Walls by Teresa Caldera, that shows how basically like cities in the global south are really um, dividing into enclaves of middle class and upper class residents that are more and more fenced up. Um, private security, private security around shopping malls, and ever-growing peripheries of marginalized neighborhoods. So some of these marginalized neighborhoods began growing in the 70s, but they've been kind of like a demographic bomb, just keeps growing and growing. And my sense is that that urban segregation is contributing to, is kind of sharpening the class divide within some of these global South cities. We see that very specifically in, in Colombia, in the revolt that I study, where in the city of Cali, which was the epicenter of the revolt, basically there were barricades along about 15 marginalized neighborhoods and major roads. And so the revolt was extremely powerful, but very much kind of shaped around the housing divide. It was like clear to anybody that was looking at where the protests were happening, where they were most militant, that it had to do with the marginalized neighborhoods. So I think that's important to, to take into account as well. As far as, and yeah, the crisis is producing, you know, is, is creating an environment for a, for a new right-wing movement that is somewhat different than the traditional right-wing in Latin America. And the point that I wanted to make about that is that this is a right-wing that is mobilized. So in Colombia, the traditional right-wing has been lobbying, leveraging the power of capital, sometimes using paramilitary violence, which is a form of mobilization, but not putting out masses of people on the streets. Now they're doing that. So they're having, you know, we see this in Brazil, we see this in Argentina, where there's competition, sometimes week after week. There's like the mass left protest and then the mass right protest. So that's something to, to take into account. But coming back to the to the revolt, so yeah, uh, Pablo, you talk about the the fragmentation of the working class and how the working class looks different than it did before, and I think that's that's key. So working classes are are not still; they're made and unmade by different cycles of capital accumulation. 
And I think to really understand this, we need to see what were the sectors that were mobilizing, what are their political economy, what are their strategies of social reproduction, what are the political subjectivities that they're expressing. So when we look at the revolt in Colombia, it's interesting because it's a revolt that is called for by traditional trade unions that are mostly public sector workers. Then they made a coalition between those trade union federations and some social movement organizations. Um, this include the indigenous movement that's based mostly on rural areas, the student movement that was very significant in the years leading up to the revolt. But then the day of the revolt, the urban poor take over and they become the vanguard. Nobody expected that. Um, they didn't have any major social movement organizations that have been doing significant things. So then looking at those different kind of fragments of the working class, I think it's a it's a fertile thing to do because they have different, they're in different locations in the political economy. And so the, the program, the demands that are more central to them are a little bit different. I think the, condi- the, the question for us is under what conditions do you know, say public sector unionized workers become radicalized by struggles of marginalized youth from neighborhoods who have never had a stable wage in their lives and vice versa, right? In Colombia, we saw the youth from the neighborhoods being like, we're not represented by the trade unions. They don't understand our struggle. And there was like this distancing from them. At the same time, there was a huge embrace of the indigenous movement so I don't have the answers to that, but I think, you know, paying attention to what are the fragments that are mobilizing, how are they relating to each other, and how are, how are their demands on their politics expressing a particular position in, in the political economy, I think is important. And then we get to organizations. So, because I agree, and we saw this, of course, in the Arab Spring and in many other revolts where the absence of what was in older generations, the role that was in older generations played by revolutionary parties is not there. So I absolutely agree with that, but then I think the question is what type of organization, right? Because the truth is that, at least in Colombia, the case that I know the most, is that revolutionary parties did not disappear. They lost a lot of strength, but they did not disappear. They're still around. And they're still agitating the revolutionary program, and they're still working in the same model. I have participated in these parties myself, so, and I think they have a lot to contribute. I'm not, I don't mean to dismiss those legacies in any way, but I feel like it runs into a thing where like, it's, it's not that nobody's putting forward revolutionary demands. It's that those revolutionary demands are not resonating with this new face of the working class in the way that they might have in other historical moments. <laughs> so I think there's a, there's a challenge, which is just like, there's new, probably new organizations and new programs that need to emerge from these revolts in order to really channel them in a kind of organized way. So some things that come up for me, neighborhood councils in the gas wars in Bolivia and El Alto were fundamental. So these were neighborhood associations, mostly informal workers, that ended up playing a leading role in, in those struggles. Um, they also had informal work, worker associations and unions in Chile and in Colombia, we see a lot of youth collectives. So those are not, they're not fully formed parties, but they're sort of, they're feminist collectives and there are notes of sort of social movement networks that played a very fundamental role in all of them. 
and the extent to which trade union federations can can engage in social movement unionism in ways that we've seen in South Africa and in other places. Um, I think that's fundamental because in Colombia, at least the cleavage between the kind of all trade union movement, who most of the youth see them as like just all bureaucrats, and this marginalized youth from the neighborhoods is huge. Um, the last kind of organizing note that I want to highlight was the Primeras Líneas, which is, was a repertoire that um, came from Chile, I think inspired by Hong Kong and other places as well, but these were self-defense brigades that protected the demonstrations from police violence. And that, I think, is fundamental because we're seeing now kind of neo-fascist or proto-fascist formations on the other side. We saw them during Bolsonaro, just like gangs of fascist youth that go attacking black commerce. And so we've seen with the Primeras Líneas uh, a really organized effort to physically defend protesters from police violence. And at least in Colombia, um, interestingly, soccer fan groups were fundamental in that. So working class, these are very organized around their soccer teams. And they're very working class. And they, they have become very politicized. Some of them are very anti-fascist. And they're militant. And they're willing to just like put themselves at the front of a very violent confrontation. So that's an interesting thing. And, and of course, you know, like, like Pablo was saying, we don't know what's going to ignite the fire. So the point is to be ready by somehow articulating these organizing notes into something that is more coherent the next time around. Um, the last thing I want to say about the, the program is that um, we want an anti-capitalist program, but one of the major barriers that we have is that we need to, in, in Latin America, specifically in Colombia, probably in Chile too, the, the ghosts of Stalinism and of forms of authoritarian <clears throat> socialism are very big. The experience of Venezuela and Nicaragua turning authoritarian is a disaster for the left, just catastrophe. It gave the right wing exactly what they wanted. They had already been demonized in Venezuela. They had picked that. And then Venezuela turned into what they projected that they would turn. It turned into a highly authoritarian dictatorial regime. So whatever party of the left or whatever organization of the left emerges from these revolts, I think absolute clarity around opposing forms of authoritarian socialism or authoritarian leftism, I think is really important. And lastly, on the tactics, um, so the occupation of public space, we're signifying public space, but but one thing that emerged in Colombia, and it's not a new repertoire, but it's it was new to the extent that it was employed, which is the, the blockades. So this was completely blocking the circulation of commodities. The trade union movement and the big social movement organizations have not been able to pull off a general strike at the point of production in Colombia for many decades, many, many decades. But during 2021... There was almost two months when in the city of Cali, which is the third largest city, it's a two million people city, there was almost no circulation going on. Because the highways that were going in and out of the city and about 15 to 20 different major highways within the city were totally barricaded. Um, so that's a really interesting repertoire. It's very powerful. And, you know, like strikes, it can be a boomerang effect too, because people eventually are like, okay, I, we need our stuff. And so there you start to have conflicts between the communities and the people who are barricading. But with all the debate about where the structural leverage comes with this remade working class that, you know, 
um, I think this 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 point, which again is a repertoire that we see in, in a lot of other struggles, I think is important. Yeah, you know, so Paolo was saying like these revolt target the state, and I think that's in some ways some some of its limitations. Maybe it's a problem with the demands, but I think part of the goal is to to find a way to target capital also. So maybe demands around nationalization, like the the demands in the gas force to nationalize the gas industry. So it was targeted the state, but it was like they're trying to take away or reclaim basically the country's natural resources from major private corporations. We don't see this in the second wave of revolt so clearly. Um, these demands that actually target capital, but um, but those are important. So in terms of questions for, for Pablo, I think I would love to hear more about your take on, on how the political consciousness of the country just shifted so radically. Um, and also your thoughts about what, what, what the new organizations of the new working class may, may look like. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Cesar. Our next presenter is uh, Susie Weissman. She's an emeritus professor of politics at St. Mary's College in Northern California. Her work is mainly on Russian and Soviet studies, as well as post-Soviet studies. Uh, she's author, famously, a political biography of Victor Serge, and she's longtime radio and podcast host of a weekly show on KPFK called Beneath the Surface. It's also Jackman Radio now, so... Uh, without further ado, Susie. Thank you, Pablo. That was great. That was really good. And thank you, Cesar, too. I don't really want to make a presentation per se, but I just have some comments. And I think, of course, you raise all of the key questions. In fact, you both do in ways that are questions that we can discuss. But I just wanted to say that 2019 was so spectacular. And for me, and for many others here too, to see that wave of revolts that went so far. So I was at some point, you know, trying to cover as many of them as I could on my radio show. But, you know, these were revolts against the status quo, but they were also revolts against austerity. And I really very much like your formulation that they were revolts about dignity and also about cutting off the future. So we saw protests in Hong Kong, India, Chile, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, Spain, France, the Czech Republic, Russia, Malta, Algeria, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Sudan, and that isn't even a comprehensive list. I was trying to put them all together here and I couldn't. But social unrest broke out repeatedly in unexpected places and for unanticipated reasons. And so it was almost like there was this wave as, as we've described it. And it was, um, you know, like links in a chain. But then several of the links became dismantled. So, yes, you raise all of those questions. I think they're incredibly important. And I also have to say, like for me, for, on the Chile question, that was just a breath of fresh air because for so many of us, I had been married to a Chilean and literally living in the aftermath of the coup for 20, 30 years, and thinking, you know, where did that energy go? Is it possible to repress it forever? And then 2019 happened, and you participated in it, and I hope in, you know, questions that people ask more about what that was like. But um, 
The other thing is about the rise of the far right, because it didn't come about because of these revolts. We saw in 2015 and 16 in Europe, it predates it. But I see, like I look at what's going on in Russia today and the rise of the far right, this shows the strength of the protest against the status quo and also the weakness at the heart of capitalism and of the regimes. That doesn't give us answers, but it does kind of show that, you know, we're doing something right. So, and then I really also wanted to say that I loved your formulation about dignity in the broadest sense, because when people think, okay, so what are you struggling for? We say we're struggling for a world in which dignity can soar. And it takes you away from all of these fossilized slogans that most people reject. So, all right, all of that. The question, one of the questions that I want to uh, ask you to raise, one of the things that crushed all of that energy was the pandemic. And that didn't just happen in Chile. But in Chile, they took special advantage of the lockdown to make it even more severe and longer lasting as a way to prevent further mobilization. And it was very successful. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the role of the pandemic in changing the mood in a way, because we also had at the same time in Chile, unlike anywhere else, for those of you who are following it, these protests broke out over a rise in subway fares. And it was high school and and young people that started it. And then it just ignited everywhere. But it was about so many other things as well. One thing that it didn't seem to be about was creating a constituent assembly to write a radical new constitution. But somewhere in the middle of that protest, that demand emerged for a constituent assembly. Chile had been suffering under Pinochet's constitution that was illegally imposed in 1980 and prevented any kind of real reform in so many ways. So people, that resonated. And then, so then there's the question, I don't want you to spend all that time going over how it was trounced. But it's significant that it was trounced and the moment was lost. And now, of course, the new right-wing response to that, the new constitution was also defeated. So they're literally left with the Pinochet constitution and some tinkering around reforming it. But it's sort of like after all of that, you're back to the same thing. So I want you to also talk about that. And then the role of immigration. Because Chile is a very interesting case. It's got the Andes on one side and the sea on the other. And it's always been very insular and very more or less homogenous as a society. And then what you got, you know, with all of the crises post-2008, and especially by, you know, what happened in Venezuela with, you know, the move from Chavez's period in power and that led to the horrific economic crisis in Maduro— Even a process as widespread as you did in Venezuela, where you had popular participation to quite a large extent, even I just read Gabriel Hetland's book where he talks about they, in the localities, people could determine the budgets. So they had like these councils that could actually determine uh, all of the investment uh, in their localities. That's so radical. Uh, But on the other hand, then Chavez dies, the energy goes, and you get this uh, Maduro. So how do you overcome a charismatic leader who leaves no real organization behind in order to um, do more? So that's just one of the questions. And then the same thing for Chile. It's a different 
uh, situation, but how at the end of the Constitution does the question of immigration become so important? So you've got all those Venezuelan refugees, and Venezuelans are very different than Chileans. Chileans are, you know, the Swiss of Latin America. They're very uh, reserved, and uh, Venezuelans are the opposite, you know, and so there's kind of a culture clash in a way, but then also you've got a lot of Haitians, and they're, you know, we have to say it, there's racism in Chile. They hadn't really had that many. When I went the first time, I couldn't believe, I think I saw one black person the whole time I was there, maybe two. Um, so there was all of that, the board, the sea and the mountains kind of opened up, and Chileans were exposed, and this brought up another factor. And of course, this is what's always used everywhere, that it's really easy to divide people on the question of, borders and immigrants and migrants. And then, you know, the last question to ask about all of that, I think, is what role climate change plays in all of this um, in terms of migration, but also in terms of the rise of the right and everything else. And that's way more than I wanted to say. But the final big, big question is about leadership in the party. And you raise it, so we have to say it. And it just seems to me like one of the things that made all of those revolts so exciting is that there was sort of horizontalism, that they were profoundly democratic, even here at Occupy, you know, that you would go to the General Assemblies, and I said, this is an interesting new form of organization. This is sort of like the Soviets. But you're right, then somebody would say, but what's the program? Where are they going to go from there? So leaderless movements are profoundly democratic and in reaction to all of the other sort of social experiments that came before it, but they have their limits. And so you're raising those questions, and I think they are the right questions to raise because it brings up the question of the problem of leadership. And that's the one that we're dancing around. So that's where I want to, because I've worked so much on the search that I found this quote and I want to read it. So sort of on this question, he said, the Paris Commune of 1871 carried on its struggle under incompetent leadership, groping and divided, while Blanqui, the only mind who might have thought clearly for the revolutionists, was shut up in the dungeons. If in 1932 the German working class had had at its disposal the firm intelligence of Rosa Luxemburg and the revolutionary passion of Karl Liebknecht, would it have capitulated without a struggle to the rising wave of Nazism? Would we have witnessed the countless retreats of the social democracy and the pitiful maneuvers of the communists? There are times when a people needs, and I'm bringing together quotes, when a people needs only one and some. For the former is nothing if not backed up by an active group which has faith in the leadership and in which the leadership has faith. In other words, a party. Given a party, an intellect, a will, history will be made. But if society does not have these elements of crystallization, nothing will happen. Reformism will land the revolution up a blind alley and much blood will flow in vain. And this is to your point about, you know, this short window of opportunity. Serge says, and even more than a party in Russia in February 2017, when the strikes that led to the downfall of absolutism or the collapse of the autocracy, the revolutionists of every party who had spent their entire life preparing for the revolution did not realize that it was at hand and that the victory had already begun. Caught in the stream of events, they moved with the crowds according to the mood of the moment. But then Lenin arrives, you know, at the Finland station and Trotsky comes the next uh, month and they both understand that this energy needs a voice. 
and you know they're fashioned by that. So there's this relationship between them. So I'm just bringing them up because these questions are the same questions that we're asking ourselves today. It's not new that you get spontaneous revolutionary movements that don't or can't, you know, take advantage of these specific moments to carry it forward. So you've raised the gigantic question about uh, the current iteration of these universal issues. And so you've set yourself in this paper a kind of gigantic task and try to figure out how we achieve a different outcome. And it helps us understand also how the working class has changed, how the fragmentation of the working class. And it's even if you look at today's New York Times op-ed section, you have the one column by David Brooks, who said he thought for sure that the Democrats could win back the working class because of the economic success of Biden. And then Paul Krugman saying the same thing. And then they go, but what happened? What is it? And of course, he thinks it's culture, religion, traditional values. I don't know. You know, that's just to become reformists, not revolutionaries. So I think that, you know, this is sort of rambling, but it's just a question of way the thing that revolutionaries who were successful always did was to struggle for reforms that always pushed the system to its limit. And because I'm always an optimist and we're living in pretty dark times right now, I think that we shouldn't forget the bright spot in the world stage is right here in the United States and specifically right here in Los Angeles. It's, we're in February, but we just came out of a hot summer of strikes that were really, really inspirational. And they were incredible organizing victories. And, you know, I talked to some of those strikers and they were more conscious than anything I'd ever imagined. Also, they understood their own role and they spoke in, in, in terms of class struggle and revolution and everything else. And I'm talking about, you know, here we had the UPS almost strike. We had auto workers strike. We had writers and actors, hotel workers, and so many more. And even before the pandemic, we had the Red for Ed movement all across the United States. And so I think that the overall issue in all of these strikes is that during this period, managers lost their legitimacy, and people were really pissed off that they first did have enough money because of the CARES package. But after that, the middle class or office workers learned to work at home and the essential workers learned that their lives were expendable. And so, you know, and this was in a period of corporate profits soaring, but the cost of living also did so. So winning strikes and garnering widespread public support was a gigantic plus, but it hasn't yet been transformed in really increasing the level of unionization, and we've yet to see any kind of political formation in the way that you talked about it. So it fits your model in a way. It's a high point. It points to the successes and the limits, but the real key question is how to break out and advance. And of course, you can all, we can chant that old slogan, the only solution, revolution, but it's just so much bigger than that these days. So that's all I really have to say. Should I? Yeah, please. Um, well, thanks, uh, Cesar and Susie. You raised very relevant points that, of course, I, I couldn't cover on my talk. I don't think I have many responses because I think I agree 100% with everything you said. But I think there are a couple of questions. So one was about the how the political consciousness of the people could shift so fast from one moment to another. And I think that, at least in Chile, it seems that one 
particular thing was very important, and this connects with what Susie was asking, the pandemic was very relevant. Because the revolt in Chile started in October 2019, and even up to March in 2020, we were still in the streets. And popular and community assemblies were still organizing and, and working in their communities. And so it, it wasn't stopping, really. People were going and protesting every Friday in Plaza Dignidad, Dignity Square, Dignity Plaza. <coughs> and so when the pandemic hit, we saw two things. One is that we were physically removed from those places where we met and where we organized and where we were active. The streets, the squares, the plazas. And I think that's, that's very relevant for how it produced a shift. And then that lockdown, the fear of the pandemic that it was instilled in people by the media, etc. Of course, the pandemic is a serious thing and we had to respond to that. And that was for us, at least the organized parts of some movements. We, we were also in a dilemma because some people were saying, well, the government is using this as a way to paralyze the movement. And of course they were doing that, but they also were responding to the pandemic, right? I mean, the government had the responsibility to provide care and to cover for cost of living for people who had lost their jobs and, and vaccine, et cetera. And so we were in sort of a dilemma that was weird because you know that conspiracy theory about the pandemic was everywhere, not just in the French right-wing movement, but also in the left. So the pandemic shifted the priorities of people. It was not about social justice, neoliberalism, or, or even the, the constitution, but it was about surviving the pandemic. And that is, if you have a movement of millions of people who are not organized, I mean, that they are not members of a group that is actively involved in something or like continuing debates during the time of the pandemic, but people were going back to their homes and back to their daily lives without protest, without being part of a, another group, that means that they can forget very quickly that they were involved in that if priorities shift so quickly. That was one of the things that had that effect. But then I don't think that there's a, such a huge shift in the political consciousness in Latin America. We can also read all the past years as a process of, of being against, of opposition to everything that is presented as a solution. So in Chile, at least, we had a very intense electoral period. We first had the, the referendum in order to approve or reject the idea of having a new constitution. And that was in October 2020, already in the pandemic. 80% of the voters approved having a new constitution. But you can read that as being against the old constitution. So that was the first rejection, in a way, even though the, the apruebo, the approved one. And then we had to elect the representatives to the Constitutional Council Convention. People rejected the traditional parties and politicians, and they elected independent candidates and social movement candidates and left-wing candidates. And so we had an, a majority of anti-neoliberal representatives in the, in the convention. That was another thing that people were rejecting, because it's not that they... I mean, some of the people who were elected were just regular people. There are a couple of examples, but a woman, a lady, that she wore a Picasso suit to the protest and became famous because of a viral TikTok video where she was dancing and then she fell, she fell down. And that was it. And she became a symbol. And then people would took 
pictures with them in the streets. Everybody would see her and say hi. So she became a symbol of just the revolt as a moment, not, not even with any kind of political content. Yeah. And she was not a political person. She had to learn a lot during the process. So that means that electing someone like that, it's not really that people were voting for her or the ideas she represented. They were mostly rejecting those who were from the traditional parties. And then, of course, the constitution was rejected. The mood was still for rejection. It was also that uh, they were rejecting the way the government was dealing with issues of daily life, but also the way they were not very clear about supporting this new constitution. I'm talking about the Boric government. And then a couple of other elections. Well, Boric didn't win the first round. It was the fascist who won. But then in the second round, we all organized to reject the fascist. People who hadn't voted for Boric before then voted for Boric. So we see in a way in Chile, at least, that there is a constant that it's the rejection of everything that is offered as a solution for our problems. So mm. no one has the ability to present a credible solution. It's not a, like a problem of what people think. It's about that the, those solutions don't really solve anything, right? Um, that's why I think this new second, I don't think it's even a progressive type, but the progressive governments in Latin America right now They're not really progressive, like Boric. Now, we can say that the Boric government is not a progressive government because it's basically implementing all the, the platform of the right wing, of Piñera even. And that's why he, support is so low in the public opinion. So yeah, I would, I would say that there are two contradictory tendencies, depending on what you're looking at, that there's a quick shift of the priorities of the people towards security, safety, uh, the economic uh, survival, But then at the same time, there's a constant in that political consciousness. But we're not exactly in the same place, even though we've sort of come full circle that we, at least in Chile, we have the same constitution. We're not exactly in the same spot. We, we've moved forward. There's the, this experience, at least. And then on the question of organizations of the working class and then the party leadership, I, may, I just noticed this, but well, it's about the question of the party, but it's not about one party. Right? I think it's about the, the idea of a kind of organization that brings people together and has a particular consequence, I think, is that all the struggles for reforms, the winning the strikes, movements that confront industrial projects that are going to be detrimental to the ecosystems, all those victories are experienced now as separate things. It doesn't appear to be... a, a something that connects all of them. So I think that the idea of parties or political organizations is how to, how can those victories can be experienced as part, as part of the same process? Because now they're seen as separate things. And then I think that the idea of a party is not the kind of party that we need today. It's not, of course, definitely not the Republican or Democratic Party, Neither the revolutionary parties of our countries, they self-proclaimed revolutionaries, right? We, you're, we're not sure that those ideas or those proposals are revolutionary for today. But I think that for me, at least, maybe it's a bit abstract, but for me, the kind of party that we need is an organization that can be inhabited by the people. That is not something that you go to a meeting and then you're out of the party when you're home, back home. It's something that you experience every day. It's like a 24-7 experience of being organized with others. 
and not just about a particular issue or even all the issues together, even those interpersonal and social relationships. The old mass parties of the working class, for most people, were not about being in the leadership or having a particular job within the party. It was just about being part of it and maybe buying the press and going to the cultural activities they had and educating themselves within the party. But now we have the old working class would educate itself in the party. Now we have universities and colleges for everyone as long as you can, as you get into debt. And that's another important shift, I think, at least in Chile. We see that access to higher education provides a new consciousness of being educated that you don't need anything else. For workers in the late 19th century, there was no other place to educate yourself or, or having access to culture than the labor union theater or that kind of social institution. So when I say an organization that we can inhabit, I'm talking about that kind of idea of a culture of being organized with others, and then experiences the victories of a movement that it's thousands of miles away as my own victory. Uh, I think that's the kind of movement that we need, that uh, common spirit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.